Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this month's episode number 34 on geriatric emergencies, we have with us Dr. Don Milady and Dr. Jacques Lee. Dr. Milady is an emergency physician at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto and a lecturer at the University of Toronto. He teaches in the undergraduate and postgraduate programs at the Faculty of Medicine, where his academic interest is of older patients in the ED. He created and teaches an award-winning seminar series for EM residents on geriatric emergency medicine and is the creator of the CME interactive website, geri-em.com. Dr. Jacques Lee is an emergency physician and director of EM research at Sunnybrook Health Science Centre in Toronto. He's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and associate editor of the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. The fastest growing age group in the North American population are those over the age of 65, and we're doing a better job every year of keeping these patients alive longer. So we're seeing more and more of these patients in the ED. This is a fact of ED life. Patients over the age of 65 comprise more than 50% of ambulance calls, more than one-third of hospital admissions, and about half of all ICU admissions. We're also a lot more likely to miss important life-threatening diagnoses in these patients compared to younger patients, and so there's also a higher bounce-back rate, and these patients that are misdiagnosed initially in the ED have about double the mortality rate. While the topic of geriatric emergencies isn't exactly the sexiest of EM topics, it is one of the most important, because as you'll see in this episode, with the help of Dr. Lee and Dr. Milady, we'll not only learn the pearls and pitfalls that'll help you pick up diagnoses that are so difficult to make in these patients, but you'll learn how to prevent an enormous amount of morbidity in these patients that we're seeing more and more every year in the ED. So welcome, Dr. Milady. I'm very happy to be here. And welcome, Dr. Lee. Hey, thanks very much for the invitation. Great. So we're going to jump into our first case here. The first case is the following. You're called to the bedside of an 80-year-old woman from home who's been waiting to be seen in the ED for five hours because the patient is agitated. She's pulled out her IV twice. She's tried to get out of bed without assistance, and she's calling out frequently. She has angry outbursts and claims that the staff is trying to harm her. You get a brief history from the daughter who lives with her, who tells you that her mother has been increasingly confused over the past week. The daughter has noted increasing knee pain, memory loss, constipation, urinary frequency, and incontinence over the past several months. Review of systems is otherwise non-contributory. Her past medical history is hypertension, severe osteoarthritis of the knees, and hearing loss. She takes Tylenol-3 as needed for knee pain, hydrochlorothiazide, and ramipril. On exam, she looks well, but appears to be very agitated. Her vitals are normal, including a bedside glucose. It takes several attempts to gain her attention to answer questions. Once focused on a question, she rambles in a disorganized way, and her speech is incoherent. Her cursory chest and abdominal exam are negative, and there's no gross focal neurologic deficits. So Dr. Milady, We see a lot of elderly patients who come into the ED with their families who describe them as confused who end up being labeled with delirium, which it sounds pretty obvious from this case that this patient is delirious. First, 
How should we best understand what delirium is and how should it be defined in the emergency department? Great question. Actually, I might take issue right off the top with your claim that this is obviously delirium, the way it's set up so beautifully. It is pretty obvious, but I wonder if your average emergency physician like myself walking into this room would actually detect that this is delirium. I think there's a tendency among us to assume that when we see an older person who looks like a wreck, to assume that that's sort of their baseline and to not make the effort to explore what this person looked like a week or two ago. Frequently, patients are there on their own and finding out what baseline is like is going to be very challenging. But probably the most important thing you can do in this situation is actually listen to the daughter so that you do find out that this is not what her mother is usually like. And as soon as you do that, then it becomes clear that this is delirium. It's an acute and fluctuating change and marked by inattention. So then you know that it's delirium. One thing I found that was really realistic about this case is that you're called to the bedside when the patient's agitated, right? If you want to go home with a clinical pearl, it's the older patient that's been waiting there for six hours trying to get your eye contact. The family's trying to wave at you, you know, and you assiduously put your head down the chart, you know. You, 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 we have this culture of ignoring older patients until the delirium happens. So I, if, I, if I had a clinical pearl for this, every time you see a delirious patient in the emergency, just think about the interactions leading up to that. Sure, some patients come from home, they've been on the floor for three days, they're delirious when the ambulance rolls in the door, right? The, the real sad part is 10 to 25% of them walk in with a pneumonia, but no delirium. And during our care on our watch, they become delirious. And really, every time you see a case of delirium, what we need to do kind of a forensic audit. What could we have done different? Was there anything we could have done to prevent the delirium? Because once they become delirium, you know, if you take two 75-year-old ladies with a pneumonia, one's delirious, one's not, the ones with delirium has got double the mortality. Delirium is acute brain failure. So that's a good point of thinking of at what point does delirium become an emergency? So you're called to the bedside of this woman because she's agitated. So is it really the agitation that is the emergency? or even a subtle, non-agitated delirium. The important thing to remember about delirium is that it's merely a symptom of some other condition. And I think that's something that we, we end up thinking about, how can I treat the delirium? So that's actually not all that important. Establishing that the person has the symptom of delirium is the important part, because then that triggers you to pursue important, life-threatening conditions sepsis, acute coronary syndromes, overdose, withdrawal, uh, metabolic issues, bleeds into your brain. If you never pick up, by listening to the daughter in this case, that this is completely different from the way her mother is, therefore she has delirium, then if you don't do that, you're never going to go the next step and look for the life-threatening conditions. If we had a patient who came in with pneumonia and kidney failure, or pneumonia and heart failure, we'd be worried about that patient, right? Each organ system that gets involved increases mortality. So I'm really trying to stress with our trainees that if you see a patient with a underlying medical condition that's complicated by 
acute brain failure. You should get in exactly the same mode as you would with a patient who's got two or three organ failure. I think that's a good pearl to take away is this idea of acute brain failure. We're familiar with acute cardiac failure, acute kidney failure, acute liver failure. The brain is another organ too. The biggest risk factor for acute kidney failure is, of course, chronic kidney disease. Similarly with acute cardiac failure is chronic heart failure. So thinking of a brain failing acutely and figuring out why that is happening is important. The biggest risk factor for developing delirium, acute brain failure, is chronic brain failure, which is dementia. So any time that you've got anybody with an underlying chronic cognitive impairment like dementia, certainly the most likely presenting symptom of any other disease is likely going to be acute brain failure delirium. Whereas dementia has been there for a long time and has a course that may change from year to year, slowly, imperceptibly, delirium is acute. It happens in hours, days, maybe a week at most. Okay. Just to review and go kind of back to the basics, what's the actual definition of delirium? We've been talking about some of the aspects of delirium, but how would you actually define it, say? So this is, it's well-defined both in the DSM, which is one of the problems because one of the problems for emergency physicians is that it is a psychiatric diagnosis because it's a brain disorder that has a medical cause. So it's always that push and pull between psychiatry and medicine. But the de de definition has four cardinal features. The features are acute and fluctuating, that's one. Marked by inattention, that's two. Disorganized thinking, that's three. And an altered level of awareness. So in the diagnostic criteria are that you have to have one and two plus one of three and four. So you have to, it needs to be acute, it needs to be fluctuating, it needs to be marked by inattention, and then either disorganized thinking, that is the blabbering person who's not making any sense, or the person who has an altered level of awareness. We're always looking for agitated, because as emerge physicians, we're more familiar with anticholinergic deliriums, with delirium tremens, with, uh, with withdrawal deliriums in younger patients. In fact, in older patients, it's usually hypoactive. 70% of all delirium in older patients is hypoactive. So it's actually the little old lady in no apparent distress, or the pleasantly demented person, or the person who's just drifting off to sleep during your exam. So there's some cases where you go to the bedside and it's quite obvious that the patient's very agitated and you ask one or two quick questions. It's quite obvious that they are suffering from delirium. What kind of questions do you ask the family in cases where you're not sure whether it's some chronic dementia or whether they've actually been tipped over into delirium? What are some of the key questions at the bedside that we can just quickly ask that can elucidate Absolutely. This? The most helpful question you can ask is what has changed? It's a three-word question, and if you ask that question and Simple. listen to the answer, if you've got a good informant, whether it be the daughter who lives with, who lives with them, somebody who's you're calling from across the continent who talks to them on a daily basis, 
the nurse at the long-term care home, if you ask that question, what's new, what's different, what has changed, that's likely going to lead you into hearing about things are really different these days. She was okay yesterday, but then today she's sleepy or drowsy or agitated or loud in a way that she not that she usually isn't. Just think about what ridiculous ends we go to to get an LP, a 21-year-old with a sudden onset worst headache of their life during intercourse. We just go to the ends of the earth, the, the difficult LP, you know, the patient's obese, you know, like you, you can spend so much time. But what do we do to find out the patient's baseline? You know what? Frankly, if the family's not there advocating, we usually, I'd say, stop there. And that's something I really want to highlight because it's such an important point of view. Hey, pick up the phone. What would you do if you ordered a white count and it wasn't back, right? We get incredibly anal about that kind of stuff and get our information. But if the information about the baseline of the patient isn't brought to us, we uh, don't get exercise about them. And that's, that's another point I really want to stress. If you've got a patient and you really don't know what they're like, I think probably one of the biggest mistakes is assuming, oh, they're confused because they're old. Right. right? The majority of older people at any age, the majority of older people are cognitively intact. 70, 80, 90, even in, the, even in 100. As long as they don't live in a nursing home, and that skews our view so much because nursing homes are places where people with dementia must live. If you take the rest of the population, right up, right up to extreme ages, most older people are, go to the grave cognitively intact. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Lee, you had mentioned that there's a good significant number of patients who come to the emergency room who are cognitively okay, and halfway through their emergency visit or a few hours into their emergency visit, they become delirious. What are some of the risk factors in the emergency department that can lead to delirium caused by the emergency department? So that's one of the few things where we do have a little evidence in geriatric emergency medicine. Anybody who's interested in delirium to look at the work of Dr. Sharon Inouye. What she did was uh, did a study where they looked at a large number of patients who came up to a medical ward, delirium-free. They did one interview when they hit the ward and looked at the ones that became delirious, okay? So what they found in that study was just being in the emergency room too long was a strong risk factor for becoming delirious. The interesting thing in that study was 12 hours in their, you know, sort of Ivy League setting of, you know, best medical care possible. 12 hours was considered a long emergency stay. And only 23% of the patients in her cohort were in an emergency department for 12 hours. And those patients had double the risk of becoming delirious versus somebody who got through the emergency department in under 20, 12 hours, all other things being equal. So length of stay in the emergency department. The other big risk factors for development of delirium in an emergency department are things that we can do something about, and those are restraints. Restraints are going to cause problems that are going to cause agitation and delirium. Mobility is a big issue. So we think of restraints as four-point or posies or lap belt or whatever. So we need to broaden our thinking about what a restraint is. So a Foley is definitely a restraint. See if you can get out of bed with a Foley in SAT monitors, blood pressure cuffs, cardiac monitors. Now, clearly, if all of those things are absolutely necessary, life-saving and contributing to patient well-being, then they're important to do. Most of the time I walk into a room, the person has 
a cardiac monitor, a blood pressure cuff, an oxygen sat monitor, and potentially a Foley in, and they're there because they've got a sore hip or back. So <laughs> a second thing that I often write on a chart is discontinue all monitors. Check the blood pressure from, from time to time, but really does that person need to be on, on a monitor? So being able to, be get, to get up and move around is something that's also going to contribute to patient well-being. So re- restraints and tethers, we'll call them tethers. tethers. Yeah. The, well, the Foley's the best single point restraint system. You know. Right. Yeah, so the mobility point, there is a New England Journal article of a quasi-randomized clinical trial that uh, looked at the impact of a multifactorial intervention to prevent delirium. One of the key elements was using volunteers to be mobility coaches to encourage patients to move around the ward. Okay? When we talk about doing it in emerge, you know, like all, all of a sudden we get the, a lot of mental barriers, right? Okay, so, uh, oh, we couldn't do that in our emerge, you know, the, the patients might fall, they might be unsafe. When a patient walks into an emergency department under their own steam, um, there's absolutely no reason why they can't continue to walk and mobilize. Another point I like to raise to stress the importance of the mobility is astronauts. Chris Hatfield, demonstrably one of the top 0.0001% fittest people on the planet. After his months in space, he was carried off that Soyuz capsule like a baby because he can't walk anymore. And it only takes about five days you know, of complete bed rest to get a massive muscle breakdown and debilitation. A patient has to be supporting their own weight about every eight hours, three times a day. That's what's needed. So when we're not doing that, we're more than doubling the risk of delirium. So we've adopted this inpatient model at Sunnybrook that came from Sharon Anyway studies. We have volunteers in the emergency that are trained. They have a list. They go around. They uh, see all the patients in order of who's been there longest. And all they do is they ask the nurse. They don't have to make a mobility assessment. They ask the nurse or the doctor, is it okay if this patient gets out of bed? So the, the volunteers act as a coach. They're not lifting anybody. They're not supporting anybody. They're taking people who walked in and just making sure that they continue to do that while they're in the emergency department. Great. So yeah, or, and also just writing a simple order, out of bed, up for next meal. So the first two important risk factors for the development of delirium in the emergency department are the length of stay in the emergency department and immobility. Next, we're going to talk about the role of pain in the development of delirium, as well as dehydration in the development of delirium, and how we can manage these two things in order to prevent delirium. Pain, a painful condition is going to increase your risk of developing delirium significantly. So good pain management, so the person with the broken hip or their fractured wrist is likely going to get confused unless their pain is well managed. Dehydration and hunger are two things that we routinely do to older people. Uh, an older person staying around with the, for the investigation of their confusion or their abdominal pain can go six, eight, 12 hours without ever getting a scrap of food or a drink of water and may not have an IV in. So food and drink, we can make sure that they're getting that. That's a great point about not giving patients food and water, right? But I think that could be addressed really just by a change in attitude. So here's, here's the example. You're walking through your, your emergency department. 
and some random patient, you know, maybe it's not your zone, it's not your patient, but they go and they ask you, oh, can my mother have a glass of water? Can my mother have something to eat? So the default answer is no. Just imagine if we did that to prisoners, right? <laughs> can you imagine the hue and cry, right? If we said, no, you're not allowed to, I don't really know, but I'm going to tell you no. Stop doing that. If somebody asks you whether they can eat or drink, it's such an important question. Take the responsibility to find out what the answer is. There's so few patients where they really need to be NPO. If patient's coming in with pneumonia, why wouldn't they be able to eat or drink? You know, if or they even if they're coming in with a broken hip. When was the last time you saw an older person go with a broken hip to the operating room within six hours of being in the emergency department? Exactly. So why not feed that person as soon as they get there? It, it doesn't happen. So food and water, you know, make it a policy in your emergency to just take responsibility for that question and not make the default no. If you're going to deprive somebody to such a basic human right, like food and water, then have a reason. Understand the reason. Yeah, so, so something I've taken to doing, the nurses don't always like, is on my initial orders working up the patient, my first order is food and drink. So then it's absolutely <laughs> clear this person can eat and drink. We've talked about what you can do on your next shift to prevent delirium. Dr. Lee, I just wanted you to go back. What does the literature tell us about how effective these things like avoiding restraints and tethers and catheters and avoiding immobility and avoiding dehydration and malnutrition, all these things, what does the literature tell us about how effective these things are in preventing delirium in the emergency department? Okay, so I'll go back to the landmark study by Sharon anyway. Basically, they had a quasi-randomized trial. Uh, if you were admitted to a medical floor, you either went to a um, specialized inpatient unit where they were all about delirium prevention, or you went to a standard medical ward, and that wasn't a selection process. It was the next available bed. The patients who went up to the delirium intervention ward had a 9.9% rate of delirium compared to, uh, I think it's 15% in the standard care. So it's a 5% absolute reduction in risk or a 50% relative uh, reduction in risk. If you think about every one of these patients who becomes delirium, adds at least a week to their admission, and sometimes it's, they become a ALC and it's permanent. You know, like they're not going home after their episode of delirium. Delirium doesn't always just clear. In fact, less than 40% of patients who get delirious in hospital are cleared at discharge. And the average time to getting rid of a delirium is six months to a year. In this whole discussion, I just love the fact that these are all very simple things we can do. They're cost-effective. They'll actually decrease mortality. And make a big difference in your patient's life. Just another plug for the importance of delirium as an eMERGE diagnosis. Establishing that somebody has a pneumonia is an important thing to do. Establishing that they have pneumonia and delirium makes a huge difference in the way the person is managed in hospital and a huge difference in their eventual outcome. So something as simple as saying to the internist who's admitting the patient, this 82-year-old has a left lower lobe pneumonia and has an acute delirium is an important thing to do. It makes a big difference in the patient's outcome. So include that as part of your diagnostic, including as part of your diagnostic workup and as part of your diagnosis is important. So the evidence-based risk factors for delirium in the ED are physical restraints, malnutrition, 
a Foley catheter, a long ED stay of more than 12 hours, and being bedridden. So delirium is acute brain failure. It always has a medical diagnosis underlying it and can be defined by the following four characteristics. Acute onset and fluctuating course, inattention, plus one or both of disorganized thinking or altered level of awareness. If you add delirium to the underlying medical condition that these patients are diagnosed with in the emergency department, it portends two times the mortality rate. Now that we've established the risk factors for delirium, we're going to go on to the underlying causes of delirium. If you're thinking of the underlying cause of the delirium, the acute fluctuating change in mental status, there's a great mnemonic, simple mnemonic, that's worth paying a dime for, and that's dimes. So five things, drugs, infection, metabolic, environmental, and structural. By far, most delirium in older patients is the first two, drugs and infection. So that's probably where you should start your history taking and be the Sherlock Holmes of the medication record. If an old person has a change in mental status, almost certainly there's something in the drug record that's going to be helpful to, that, to, to you. So do everything you can, spend as much time as it takes to get a complete and thorough medication history. That doesn't just mean looking at the triage, nurses quickly scrawled record of the five medications that they're on. It means talking to the family, talking to the patient, inquiring about over-the-counter additions. If they've, have they recently started taking the uh, anticholinergic, antiemetic because they needed some extra sleep? Explore all the over-the-counter stuff call the pharmacist, has there been a new addition that hasn't appeared in the bag? And something that I always talk about is a brown bag biopsy. <laughs> so if they've brought that bag of medication or EMS is particularly good at scooping everything that's there, it takes probably two or three minutes, but go through the whole bag and find, what's, find out what's in there. Often down at the bottom, you're gonna find the causative agent. So that's drugs. Infection is the next most likely cause of a delirium in an older person, and the big three are pus, P-U-S, pneumonia, something in the respiratory tract, urinary, something in the urinary tract, and the one that we usually don't think about, which is the third most common, skin and soft tissue. So old people have fragile skin, they easily develop ulcers, they don't have good sensation in their periphery, so they don't often don't notice that they've got a painful red swollen calf or thigh. So take a good look front and back, top and bottom at the patient to see if they do have some redness somewhere. Third thing on the dimes mnemonic is metabolic. So then you're kind of getting into further reaches. So a good metabolic panel, looking for the hyponatremia for whatever reason, looking for the hypercalcemia from the METs, from the undiagnosed cancer. Environmental is sort of simple, too hot, too cold but can, not, can certainly throw an older person off. And then structural causes, it is a brain disorder, so the chances of there being something wrong, structurally wrong in the brain are high. Old people get spontaneous subdural hematomas easily because of their shrinking brain and their rigid dura. And often confusion is the only presenting sign of a, of a silent stroke that doesn't cause any other symptoms. So that, that brings up the question, actually, the practical question of which patients in the emergency department with delirium 
do you order a CT head on? So let's say you've got this patient who you've done your panel of metabolic stuff, you've looked for pneumonia, you've looked for a UTI, you've gone through their drugs, you can't find any cause of their delirium, and you decide, well, let's just order the whole confusogram and get a CT head. Most of us probably over-order CTs. Uh, which patients do you order CT heads on who come in delirious so you can't find a cause? So a resident I was working with recently said, patient has a brain, patient has a brain problem, I have a CAT scan. So uh, and everybody gets a, uh, a CAT scan. I don't think that's necessarily true, but certainly we probably need to have a fairly low threshold for scanning somebody. One of the main issues about delirium is that it's often, particularly in the complex older patient, multifactorial. So they may have a pneumonia. That doesn't mean that they don't have a subdural at the same time. So certainly, given that dimes demonic where structural is the last of the five points, probably working through the first four scrupulously if you're still coming up empty-handed at that point that person certainly needs a cat scan and then the final point there is if the cat scan also doesn't give you your answer you still have a patient with delirium which is a symptom of a life-threatening condition and that person needs further observation and work up in hospital dr yeah. lee what do, you, what do you think about yeah, ordering no, it's, cts it's an it's an excellent question so with regards to that evidence, frankly, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of evidence to guide you in terms of when, when not. There is a fair bit of evidence that these tests are low yield, meaning that most of the CAT scans you do are going to end up being negative. That does not mean that you don't need to do them. The, the take-home point here is that you need to go through those steps first before you decide to do a CT. Yeah, that, and that, you know, with the second you see the patient who's delirious, you don't just order the CT off the top, that you look through the drugs, you look for infection, you look for these other things first, and then if you don't come up with anything, then it's reasonable to order yeah, a CT. You know, yeah, so, and important to say that in the older patient, a CAT scan is a zero risk investigation, which is also these days not very expensive. So there isn't a big downside. So this is not a 21-year-old brain that you're radiating. It's an 85-year-old. The lag time for development of any problems is probably 30 to 40 years, zero risk. Right. So while the 21-year-old who has no focal neurologic deficit is extremely low yield on a CT and there's a risk of radiation... Mm -hmm. In the older patient, radiation isn't, isn't part of the equation. And the potential and the, benefit is creeping up. Yeah, and they're also, it's also much more difficult to pick up a focal neurologic deficit on an older patient. I want to make one more point on the CT, picking apart the abnormal mental status. For example, when a patient has got a really fixed obsession you know, with a delusion, but they can attend fine, right? In fact, they have hyperconcentration because they're really fixed about people that are trying to get them in an elaborate history and they know their address, they know what they had for breakfast. Just don't say globally confusion or altered mental status. Put it through a, a bit of an analysis. If it looks like it's a mental health issue, not a what we used to call an organic problem, maybe the CT isn't necessary. And that's been shown in studies, you know, that with mental health patients where you've got a good history that's consistent with a mental health CT scan isn't appropriate. But delirium... Different thing. We know that there's something going on. I would say from an emergency management point of view, 
not whether they need a CAT scan, but when do they need the CAT scan? So just ask yourself this, is it going to change my admission? Will it change the fact that the patient needs to be admitted, right? So if the answer is no, and they don't have focal deficits, you know, and they're, they're GCS isn't rapidly declining, well, then maybe the admitting service can put that, uh, it can be done in the morning. Okay. I want to move on now to, you're at the bedside, back to the case, and you've got this patient who's very agitated. So we've got an older patient who's very agitated. I want to talk about some pearls of what to do right there and then. In terms of medications, my understanding is that some people's go-to medication for the older patient who's very agitated and delirious, who you need to use medication for, is haloperidol. Some people say that haloperidol might not be your choice because the half-life is so long, a few weeks, and if you over-sedate them, then they're going to be gorked for weeks on end. Then there's the newer atypical antipsychotics that some people claim are better than Haldol. Some people say that it's, they're not as good. Uh, then there's benzodiazepines, which are generally safe in young people. And are you know, bad in old people. <laughs> and Yeah, and in old people, some people don't recommend them. This is all very confusing to me. Can we talk a little bit about you've got your agitated older patient in front of you. You feel like you need to go to medications that verbal de-escalation isn't working. You've tried to help their environment. You've tried to get their family involved. You need to go to medications. What's your go-to medication? Are there different patients who require different kinds of medications? How do you dose them? What's your recommendation? First of all, let's talk about deciding you do need medication. So the medication is for the uh, agitation that accompanies about 30% of delirium in older patients. And so it needs to be agitation that is preventing care or putting the patient or somebody else at risk. So if those conditions are met, then certainly some kind of medical intervention is probably indicated. I think for most of your listeners, haloperidol is going to be the go-to drug. It's an old, safe drug. It's in every emergency department, and there's lots of evidence for its efficacy. The problem that you elucidate is that it tends, because we're familiar with giving it to the 32-year-old psychotic bodybuilder who's just taken too much ecstasy, and we are giving it a 10 or 20 milligrams IM or IV, we think of that as the, the standard dose. So likely, the starting dose for a person over the age of 70 would be something like 0.5 milligrams IV or orally. You can easily put more in, you can't take it out. So, but starting low and then redosing as necessary. I think you're, many people will have the same experience that I do of this very agitated person. You give them one milligram of haloperidol orally and 30 minutes they're asleep. Other medications are certainly worth exploring if you happen to have risperidone in your emergency department. All the same guidelines would apply to that. Use it if you need it. Start at a low dose. Give more as you need it. Most emergency departments don't have risperidone lying around, so haloperidol is where I would start. And the starting dose of risperidone in the older person would be 0.25 to 0.5 milligrams. Just on the benzodiazepine front, so while certainly high-dose benzodiazepines is the best management for status agitaticus for the agitated delirium younger patient generally giving lorazepam or diazepam to an older agitated person will just give you a drowsy disinhibited 
agitated older person <laughs> it will not accomplish your goal okay so your guys go to medication generally speaking vitamin h the wonder drug vitamin h start slow start, start low, slow and go, go slow. slow okay got it and just to remind our listeners that for Haldol, there are extra pyramidal side effects that you need to look so, out for. Yeah, that would certainly be, you know, if somebody has Parkinson's disease or a reason to have significant experimental symptoms like a lifetime of antipsychotic use, that's the one situation where you probably are going to be quite hesitant to use it. And if there is a record of prolonged QT and consequences of that. If you've got a super agitated person and with a slightly prolonged QT, I'd probably, my risk-benefit assessment would likely still be to go with the haloperidol. One other thing that I get asked a lot, particularly by residents and by others, is who's safe to discharge home? And is it ever safe to discharge somebody home with delirium? The answer is potentially yes, though in very special circumstances. So I think with a clear and treatable cause for the delirium and a, a safe environment where everybody is aware of the conditions of the discharge. So a 92-year-old with a large left lower lobe pneumonia and now confused, but going back to a long-term care home and able to tolerate oral antibiotics, probably safe to discharge home. Somebody with a urinary tract infection who has got confused in the past with urinary tract infections and has a husband or a wife who says, oh, this is the way Joe or Joan always is, and she'll settle down in a day or two, and I feel comfortable looking after her, safe to discharge home. Those conditions aren't often met, and I think for the most part it is safe to say that if somebody has an acute confusional state, acute brain failure, even if you don't come up with a cause in the emergency department, even after an exhaustive search, that person probably, the only safe place to provide care for that person is in a hospital. I think we've all had the experience of this kind of mystery delirium that gets admitted to the hospital, and then two, three, four days later, something else happens and a treatable cause becomes clear. So delirium NYD is not a discharge diagnosis. While internists do not like being referred, gee, I've got this old person and I don't know what's wrong with them, they actually love the diagnosis delirium NYD because that really gives them something to chew on. So on your next shift, establishing that somebody has a delirium, that's one thing you can do, doing a basic workup or even an extended workup, and then if you're still not coming up with an answer, telling your internist that you've got an older person with a delirium that you don't know the cause of, but you know that they have delirium, is going to help you manage that patient much more easily. So actually sending home patients with delirium, um, there's a good study by Kakuma on this. They actually had a database of patients that had a diagnosis of delirium in the emergency department, and they went and found out what happened to these patients after the fact. And they were also able to tell whether the delirium was recognized by the clinicians at discharge or not, and that's a key point. Compared to somebody who's you know admitted to a hospital and doesn't have a delirium, somebody who had an unrecognized delirium and went home, the mortality was three to seven times higher. Really astronomical. And so I think one of the key things for, to take home from that study was that recognition of the delirium is important because once you've recognized it, if you're entertaining 
a discharge in that patient, then you can get all the safety provisions that need to be in place. They have to have really good supervision. Do not leave this person home alone because they might try and cook and burn down the house. Let's go into case number two. This is going to be an abbreviated case. A 90-year-old woman from home comes in with her caregiver after falling in the bathroom and smashing her hip on the edge of the bathtub. According to the EMS, she has an obvious leg length discrepancy with an externally rotated right leg. She was just seen in your emergency department the week prior after falling in her bedroom. Dr. Lee, before we get onto the causes of falls, and talk about a general approach to fall, could you just remind our listeners of what the risk factors for falls in older people are? Which are the people that we need to be looking out for who are at risk for multiple falls and injuring themselves? Great, so like anything, the past is the best predictor of the future. So a patient who's fallen before, and particularly you need to be paying attention to people who've had injurious falls. They fell, had a Coley's fracture, uh, medications, psychoactive medications, are known to be a risk factor for falling. And quite uh, interestingly, there's a lot of systems involved in maintaining upright posture. So people with poor eyesight, eyes are needed to sort of maintain the horizon. People with poor hearing, surprisingly, but uh, we actually do use echolocation. And uh, people with poor proprioceptive feedback, so they've got nerve damage, diabetes, you know, they don't get the, the sensation back and people who've had their joints replaced. Because when you take out a joint, like the knees and, and the hips, you actually lose all of the sensory information from your joint. So your leg feels a little dead, you don't quite know where, where it's at. Right? And people who have had a loss of function, basically they're not walking much. Use it or lose it, right? So anything that's keeping people in bed and inactive, those are some of the big risk factors for subsequent falls. In short, what Jacques has just described is older people, <laughs> meaning, so those are the people with multiple medical conditions, multiple medications, sensory impairments, some cognitive impairments, some functional decline. So in general, I think we could say that many old people are at significant increased risk for falls most of the time. Okay. Um, and before we get on to a general approach to falls uh, and how to manage these patients, why should we care about falls? So Dr. Hellman, you know, I think your case is a great example. We see a patient with a fall, we don't maybe take it seriously, they've come back with a life-altering injury. If you look at the injury rates for death for motor vehicle accidents, the death rate per thousand for 25-year-old males, right, the highest risk category they are, when you hit between 70 and 80, the risk for dying from a fall crosses the risk for dying in a car accident when you're a 25-year-old male, and it goes up tenfold in the next decade. So it's really a lethal problem when you get older. And Dr. Milady, we've talked about some of the risk factors. Can we just go on to sort of your general approach to patients in the emergency department with falls? Generally, four components, parts of which most emergency physicians are quite good at and parts of which we could probably stand to improve on. So one is assessing the cause of the fall. Secondly is assessing the injuries coming from the fall. 
Third is establishing a safe discharge plan. And fourth is addressing issues of prevention. So certainly we're very good at assessing the injuries. So once this older person comes back the second time, having had her broken hip, we're very good at saying, oh, you've got a broken hip, and now you need to be admitted to the hospital where you're likely going to develop pneumonia and then stay in the ICU for two weeks and go to a long-term care home. So if we had been better the week before at establishing a cause for the fall and at establishing a safe discharge plan so that the causes of the fall were taken into consideration and dealing with issues of prevention, then this patient would be much further ahead. Our emergency department would be further ahead because we wouldn't be dealing with a now more complicated problem and our whole healthcare system would be further ahead because we'd have a healthy functioning old person at home instead of one in a long-term care home. Absolutely. So let's let's go through those four things. Let's start with the cause of the fall. Can you just go through for us some of the pearls on how to figure out what the cause of the fall is and what important things we need to be looking for? Yeah, so Dr. Lee has already established some of the risk factors, so assessing them is clearly going to be important. Probably medication is an important one. So the week before when this woman came in, I wonder if a very thorough assessment of all of her medications was done, and if a really thorough fall history was done. How often has she fallen? Have there been previous injuries from other falls? When do the falls take place? Are there any kind of clear connections? So, for example, a a drug that we don't often ask about is the most common drug in our society, and that's alcohol. Lots of older people do use alcohol, just like the rest of us, and a significant number of falls are connected to alcohol intoxication. Other Are the falls happening mostly at night? Is it a so related to postural hypotension, getting up from a lying position? Is it related to other medications? Does it happen mostly in the morning when the person's rushing to the bathroom after taking their diuretic medication? Is it happening more in the evening after they've taken their sedative medication to go to bed? It's a thorough medication history. A fall is one of those atypical presentations, which is often a symptom of another disease. So are they falling because this, the fall is a symptom of weakness caused by their acute coronary syndrome or is it an atypical anginal pattern? Are they falling because they're newly weak because they've got some kind of systemic illness like pneumonia that's making them short of breath and lightheaded when they stand up? So thinking of falls as a, as a symptom of another disease can also lead you down that path. So that would be in the person who's doesn't have a history of falls, now has new falls, which it sounds like our lady who's now fallen and broken in her hip fits into that category. One of the amazing statistics is that 20% of, of patients over the age of 65 with cardiovascular syncope present with the chief complaint of fall. Can you just tell us a little bit about the relationship between syncope and fall and how we can try and tease out yeah, I think that's real important, Don's approach, starting with cause of the fall. Is this a fall or is it syncope? So that's, that's critical. And really, all you have to do is fight against the framing bias. When, a, when you see an older person and they're put in your resuscitation zone, you know, after they've had a fall, you're a lot more likely to think about syncope than if they were put in your ambulatory minor care area. So it's really just getting into that discipline of every time I see a patient with a fall, 
have I considered syncope? And one of the keys is, do they have a clear recollection of the events of the fall? The patient really can't tell you how they came to fall or the details of the fall or they seem to be changing. That should set up, well, maybe you don't remember. If I can just jump in, last year, Dr. Lee and I shared a podium at the International Congress of Emergency Medicine with Roseanne Kenny, who is the European queen of syncope. And I certainly learned some very interesting things there that I hadn't specifically known. And that is that most people, young and old, cannot actually give you a good pre-syncope history. So we do all this stuff like, was your heart beating fast or slow? Or did you feel palpitations? Did you feel lightheaded? Was your chest pain? Did you catch your toe? People are mostly just making up answers to those questions, and we shouldn't fool ourselves that we're actually getting good information. Um, so if you've got a syncope, or if you've fallen and hit your head, we know that your incident recall is not going to be good. So if you should be, when gathering a fall history, you really need to get some collateral information. Was somebody else with them when they had the fall, and what did that person see? So Dr. Lee, We've gone through the risk factors, a general approach, and the causes of falls. Let's talk a bit about what we can do in the emergency department to prevent the morbidity and mortality related to falls. What are some of the concrete things we can do in the ED to prevent falls, and how effective is fall prevention? Great. Thanks, Dr. Holman. Yeah, I'm really glad we, we chose fall because, you know what, that's another area where there's good evidence that we can avoid future falls. The number one paper in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society for the 1990s was a study that showed just taking a Tai Chi class dramatically reduces your risk of falls. So if you're in an emergency department anywhere, find out who's doing falls prevention in your neighborhood. If they can't get into a falls prevention and you don't have one where you are, get them to take a Tai Chi class, right? Anything that's promoting mobility, movement on a regular basis. That's another thing, right? Like a weekly activity they go to, it's going to help. I can hear emergency physicians around the world saying to themselves, what does this have to do with me in the emergency department? I think there are something, a few things that everybody can do. So one is some basic assessment of mobility in the emergency department. So get the person up out of bed, see what they can do, test, road test them, take them for a spin around the department, see how they're using their walker or their cane, and are they, and see what their vital signs are like once you get them back to bed. You know, a little quick clinical tool you can use called a timed up and go test. So the patient has to be sitting in a reasonable chair, like not up on a stretcher, right? A chair, uh, preferably with arms on it so that somebody could rise. And you just ask them to stand up from the chair and take six steps. And uh, if that takes them more than 15 seconds, you know you've got a problem right away. So that, that itself is an independent risk factor that's for falls. As a version of the timed up and go test, which has lots of scientific validity to it, just getting them up off the stretcher, standing, and going for a walk in the hall reveals tons of information that you're not going to get elsewhere. The person who looks good lying down may not look good after 20 steps, or the person who looks awful lying down may actually look better, and you may feel quite reassured about sending them home. One 
thing people involved with care of older people like to say is that it's a team sport. Emerged physicians are being asked to do more and more with less and less. This is a chance where you can reach out to your interdisciplinary team or create an interdisciplinary team in the emergency department. So see if you can get somebody else to take a look at this, pers at this person. Many emerged departments in Canada now have a geriatric eMERGE nurse specialist or a physiotherapist who can come down and do at least a daytime assessment of this person or a pharmacist who could take a look at their medication record more in more detail. So that might be able to be done in the emergency department or most places in Canada certainly have some kind of home care available in the community. I'm thinking about this person with her fall last week how would things have been different had either a nurse or a physiotherapist been able to go into her home in the intervening week? Are there rugs on the floor that she's slipping on? Can she actually negotiate the step between the living room and the, and the bedroom with her walker? Is there a grab bar in the bathroom where she actually fell? Is there a raised toilet seat that's going to facilitate her getting off the toilet and preventing a fall? If any of those minor interventions have been put in place, which you can do from the emergency department with a, with a referral, probably she wouldn't have ended up back in the emergency department. You can say, well, this is more, this is kind of a primary care issue and she should follow up with her family doctor. However, the emergency department is often the place where these issues come to light. The family doctor may not know about them and she may not be able to get to, to the family doctor I think there is a responsibility in the emergency department to be involved with prevention. If we see somebody in the emergency department with a change in their pattern of angina, we usually do something about that. We refer them back mm -hmm. to their cardiologist. We probably even type up a referral note and say, your patient has a change in their pattern of, of angina, and we probably save lives as a result of that. We probably should be thinking of falls, change patterns of falls or new falls as something that's just as high risk as acute coronary syndrome. So another uh, thing we can do to avoid falls is think about the psychoactive medications we add. So adding a benzodiazepine uh, for sleep at night um, may be a bit risky, right? You know, um, Bumping up their Lasix, uh, we want to make sure that we're not creating uh, postural hypertension. You, you know what, you might have to do that. But uh, just go over with them, look, you know, for the first couple of mornings, I want you to dangle your feet up, hang them off the bed. Similarly, uh, narcotic medications for pain control, look, they're important. Um, I'm not saying not to give them, right? But, you know, you, you have to consider the falls risk in, as part of the equation. And educate the patient uh, about them. So starting a new, uh, increasing the Lasix, good thing to do. And tell the patient this is likely going to make you a little bit more lightheaded. Narcotics for the painful wrist, good thing to do. Just make sure that the patient, family members, caregiver know this is likely going to make you a little bit more unsteady on your feet. You want to may, may take some extra precautions. Let's talk a little bit about disposition of these patients with falls. Let's say you've got an older patient who's come in with falls and you're unable to nail down a specific emergency diagnosis that's contributing or causing the falls. How do you decide which of these patients require admission and which ones can go home? So I learned a long time ago that if you're discharging somebody home, they have to be able to walk to the door. 
So that's another pitch for doing some kind of a walk assessment, not leaving it to the nurse or to somebody else, but actually doing it yourself. So see if the person can actually get up out of their bed and walk to the door. And is that roughly the equivalent of the distance from their bed to their bathroom uh, and their bed to their kitchen? Because that's what they're going to need to be able to do at home. Some sort of functional assessment of what their conditions are at home is, needs to be in place. So the ADLs are being able to transfer, being able to bathe or shower, dress themselves, feed themselves, and toilet. So whatever their injury as a result of the fall is, they need to be able to do those five things either independently, and if they can't do it independently, then you need to be involved with establishing some kind of care regimen where they are going to be able to manage over the next few days. That may just be getting assistance from the family, but if the person lives alone, has a two-story house, bathrooms on the up a flight of stairs, likely there needs to be some kind of home intervention done before they leave the emergency department uh, for them to be safe to be at home. Before we leave the subject matter of falls, Dr. Lee's going to talk about pathologic fractures and what we can do in the emergency department to identify and prevent the next pathologic fracture in our older patients. So the human body was designed to survive a fall from your own height without a serious injury. If that were not true evolution, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, none of us were, would survive childhood, right? So another thing to take in mind is, is if you just slip and fall onto the floor from a chair and you break a wrist or uh, you have a low impact you know, fall from standing and you break a hip, Another important aspect is you've got pathologically weak bones. One thing we often forget is the GP should be putting every Coley's fracture, every hip fracture on some regime to improve the bones because that's all you need to know. They've got pathologically weak bones. Absolutely. Just a little note to the family doctor that this patient has a pathologic fracture that they need to work up for osteoporosis and should have already been on vitamin D and calcium and may very well need a bisphosphonate. Yeah, Dr. Hellman, you raise a valuable point. We often do a lot of good work. We almost always do a lot of good work for our patients in the emergency department. We're somewhat, often somewhat deficient at passing that good work on to other people who need to know about it. So being scrupulous about finding a way of getting your, the information that you now know back to the primary caregiver, whatever system you can set up in your own emergency department to do that is going to benefit your older patient a lot. Before we go on to atypical presentations in the older person in the emergency department, I'd like to give you our quote of the month. This one's by Robert H. Goddard, who was an American rocket engineer in the early 1900s. Resolve to be tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant with the weak and the wrong. Sometime in your life, you will have been all of these. Let's go on to our third case. The third case is that of our dreaded weak and dizzy patient. So you've got an 89-year-old lady living independently in a senior's residence, and the chief complaint in the triage note is the dreaded weak and dizzy. She's assigned as a low-priority patient by the triage nurse. When you see her, she says she doesn't really feel sick. She doesn't have a fever. She doesn't have chest pain. She doesn't have any dyspnea. She just has no appetite and no energy. She says she feels the exact same way she felt when she was diagnosed with a UTI the last time she was in the emergency department. 
She has a past medical history of AFib and CHF, and she takes furosemide, hydrochlorothiazide, warfarin, aspirin, and digoxin. On exam, her vitals are normal except for a heart rate of 42. She has normal mental status. The labs show an elevated BUN in creatinine, as well as... So if you go into the room assuming that there's likely nothing wrong with this woman because she's just an old lady who's weak and dizzy, almost for sure you're going to go astray. If you go into the room thinking, oh, new complaint, weak and dizzy, weak can be a symptom of a lot of different things, you're likely going to frame the situation differently. So what could this woman have? She could have a lot of things, starting at the top, she's on an anticoagulant, so she could have a bleed into her head as a result of that, or even without that, she could have a bleed into her head. Is she going to present typically the way a 50-year-old would, would if they had a bleed into their head? No, she isn't, because her brain's small, she's got lots of extra space, and slow accumulation of blood. She may have a substantial subdural hematoma, and her only symptom might be feeling weak. Could she have ACS? Well, she's got cardiac disease. So is she going to say, Doc, I've got this heavy pressure on my chest that makes me sweaty and it radiates to my arm? No, she won't because that's actually a very unusual presentation of angina in, in older patients. The most common symptom of acute coronary syndrome in women over 80 is probably dyspnea and weakness. Could she have something in her belly that is making her feel weak, like an intra-abdominal sepsis, cholecystitis? She may not be saying my right upper quadrant hurts and I'm having nausea. She just may be feeling not right and weak and dizzy. Could she have the usual urinary tract infection? Yes, she could, but since lots of women have white blood cells in their urine, even when they don't have a urinary tract infection, you don't want to go there as your first diagnosis. Could she have something metabolically wrong? Yes, she's on a whole bunch of different medications, digoxin and two different diuretics that could throw things off. What's she been eating and drinking the last few days? Is there an extra medication on board that has changed her liver's ability to metabolize things? So certainly metabolic derangement is a distinct possibility as well. Even in the area of psychiatric abnormalities, older people often present atypically. It is very rare for an older person's depression to present as decreased mood, but more commonly a preoccupation with psychosomatic symptoms and often weakness and general fatigue can be a symptom of depression. Is, can depression be a life-threatening condition? Yes, we know it is because one of the symptoms of depression is killing yourself group of people who are most likely to complete a first attempt at suicide are older people. So considering her weakness to be a symptom of uh, psychiatric illness is an important consideration as well. So let's go on with the case. The nurse hands you an ECG, which shows a slow, regularized AFib typical of DIG toxicity, despite a normal DIG level. Dr. Lee, can you tell us a little bit about how this is possible that you have a normal DIG level in an older patient who's DIG toxic? Sure. So this is an example of the importance of considering drug interactions. This is an example of a drug host interaction. So basically, bijoxin is a sodium potassium ATP pump poison. So here, even at a quote unquote normal therapeutic level, 
you've got a patient who's functionally experiencing uh, limiting symptoms, fatigue, bradycardia, despite having a normal level because that level is too high for this particular patient in the context of having a concomitant low potassium or low magnesium. The effects of the digoxin on the potassium pump are magnified. And the other thing to keep in mind is that there are other things going on. So this could be an example of a drug disease interaction because at the same time as they're having digoxin use, therapeutic use, they're having worsening renal function, which can also contribute. Right. So that elderly patient with CHF, they're often on a lot of diuretics that can sometimes tip over their, their kidney function. They often get hypokalemic and hypomagnesemic if they have too much diuretic on board. And so this can make them dig toxic. The therapeutic range in the elderly for a lot of these for different drugs. all drugs and biochemical findings is not what it is in a 50-year-old. Absolutely. That's we need to keep in mind. Sometimes elderly patients are convinced they know the diagnosis that's causing their symptoms that they came in with. Like in this patient, she declares that she feels the same way she did when she had a UTI last time she was diagnosed. Dr. Milady, can you explain to our listeners what anchoring is and how it relates to elderly patients in the emergency department? So anchoring is establishing a diagnosis early on and once we have established a diagnosis in our mind, we know it's very difficult to drift away from that diagnosis. Everything that we subsequently learn brings us back to the same diagnosis. This is a particularly high-risk cognitive error in older patients, both for the patient herself as well as for the physician. When you're 85 years old, you've got five chronic conditions, you've lived a long time, you've had a lot of things go wrong with you. So there's the tendency for the patient to kind of relate everything that's happening now to things that have happened in the past. So it's true, being weak and dizzy can be a symptom of urinary tract infection, but as we've already talked about, it can also be a symptom of acute coronary syndrome or a subdural hematoma. So you don't want, given that a urinary tract infection is probably not all that serious, but the other two are super serious, you don't want to get anchored to the first diagnosis too early. 50% of all healthy community-dwelling adults, male and female, have white blood cells and bacteria in their urine all the time. So we don't want to pin too many diagnoses on a lab finding that probably represents their state of health. So really the only way you can pin something specifically on white cells and bacteria in an older person's urine is if you know that a month ago they didn't have those findings or if they have some new symptom that is specifically referable to the urinary tract. The sun is just about to set but we're anchored here instead. You're drifting in and out Blurring in the undertow I'll see you clear when you come Dr. Milady, you had mentioned medications as a cause of the weak and dizzy presentation. About 15% of hospital admissions in older patients are related to adverse drug effects. Can you just go through for us what the key medications that every emergency doctor should know about in terms of how they affect older patients in the emergency department? Which are the medications that we really need to take a close look at 
and decide whether the patients really need them and how to manage these medications in these patients. When dealing with medications, right from the first year of medical school, we're always talking about the risk-benefit ratio. We know that giving drugs to people is a risky business, and we know that in general it's a beneficial business as well. What you're wanting, of course, is low risk, high benefit, but that isn't always going to be possible in older patients. So one way of thinking about this is trying to make a decision about new medications or the medications the person already on where you're aiming for things that are at least of high benefit, even if sometimes that means also high risk. And what you're wanting to avoid at all costs are medications of low benefit. The ideal drug, of course, is high benefit, low risk. Antibiotics would likely fall into that category. So the high-risk, low-benefit medications we've already talked about in when we were talking about delirium, for example, so are things like benzodiazepines, which are probably extremely risky medications in older people. If the person is already on a benzodiazepine when they come into the emergency department, you might want to mention that your family doctor could consider finding a more helpful drug for you to be on and certainly avoid giving benzodiazepines in the emergency department. They're not generally very beneficial, very high risk for falls and confusion. Anything that has any kind of anticholinergic um, effect, particularly one medications that we give a lot, Gravol is the trade name in Canada for dimenhydrinate, an anti-nausea medication. Benadryl is the trade name in Canada for diphenhydramine, and antihistamine, both of them are commonly used around the world also for their sedative effects. These are super high risk medications in older people because of their strong anticholinergic effect and its deliriumogenic potential. Medication that's commonly used around the world are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. I'm going to make an absolutist polemical comment <laughs> that it's my belief that no one over the age of 65 should ever receive an NSAID unless they have a condition that is clearly anti-inflammatory and that there are no other options available for their management. NSAIDs are probably not good medication in older people for three reasons. They have a kidney effect. All older people have some degree of renal impairment and adding an NSAID is like, is, has the potential to tip them over into uh, acute renal failure. Most older people already have hypertension and NSAIDs have an effect on exacerbating hypertension, but most importantly, because old people have thin gastric mucosa, produce a lot of extra acid and decrease gastric motility, and you add an NSAID on top of that and the chances of gastric bleeding are extremely high. The fourth probably high-risk, low-benefit uh, medication is, is codeine a drug that nobody understands why we're still prescribing it, but we are. It's a very weak analgesic. It is not metabolized in 10% of the population. It has an extremely heavy burden of GI side effects and is quite deliriumogenic in older patients. So those are the high-risk, low-benefit medications, benzodiazepines, codeine, NSAIDs, and anticholinergics. Let's go on to the high-risk, high-benefit These are the even harder ones to manage because these are the ones that actually confer a great deal of benefit. 
the main ones that I would think of in this category would be anticoagulants, hypoglycemics, and opioids, all of which are kind of the greatest gift that modern medicine has uh, for keeping older people alive and healthy, but do really need to be handled very gingerly because of their high-risk potential. So anticoagulants, principally Coumadin, is a medication that's almost completely metabolized by the liver. There's a decrease in hepatic function as we age. Older people tend to be on a lot of other medication. They're competing with all of those enzymes. And then we tend to add new medications when people are already on Coumadin, which has a strong potential to change the person's INR. If you're starting a patient in the emergency department who's already on Coumadin, on a new medication, that needs to be taken into consideration. Either stop the Coumadin or tell the person that it's likely going to have, an, the new medication is likely going to have an effect on their INR, set up some frequent testing within the next first three or four days and give them warning signs about potential bleeding. Drug interactions are a major challenge for warfarin. Almost all antibiotics increase the potency of warfarin and therefore the INR, especially Cipro, uh, the sulfa drugs, and somewhat less erythromycin. Remember that amiodarone is a particularly powerful inhibitor of Coumadin metabolism. What's not so well known is that Tylenol in high doses, like 2 grams, may increase the INR again by inhibiting Coumadin metabolism. Other interactions you need to think about with warfarin are SSRIs, anticonvulsants, and PPIs. Dr. Malady is now going to continue with the high-risk, high-benefit medications and talk about hypoglycemics. Oral hypoglycemics and insulin need to be considered in the uh, differential of falls and weakness. So it's very difficult for older people to manage insulin. It requires fine titration. It requires good eyesight and fine motor control. So the potential for overdosing or also for forgetting doses is very high. Sulfonylureas are well known to cause precipitous drops in blood sugar. Make sure you're keeping that in mind when you're assessing somebody for falls who's on gliburide. A medication that certainly has high benefit is anything in the opioid class. One does need to keep in mind, though, several things about older people. Their blood-brain barrier is more permeable, so they have more immediate effect of opioids. They have fewer brain cells, so greater effect from opioids, and it has a greater effect on all body systems than they do at an earlier age. So start low, go slow, but that doesn't mean don't give it. Yeah, and I wanted to get in about the opioid category, uh, two things. Talking about delirium, severe pain is a big cause of delirium. It's a, a big cause of loss of functional ability, you know, and bounce back to emerge. So a little bit of experimental evidence. Uh, Morrison and Mark Antonio have done great work in, in uh, post-op hip fractures. They looked at older patients with dementia, um, the ones who got good narcotic control with adequate and appropriate doses of uh, morphine versus people who were getting sort of um, small, almost homeopathic doses. Interestingly enough, the people who got adequate opioids to control the pain had less delirium than the patients who were given uh, small doses. So, you know, if you're worried about causing confusion, if the patient's got really severe pain, 
that's a potent cause of delirium itself. So you're right, you have to hit, you got to get that Goldilocks point, you know, enough, but not too much. The timed peak effect of all symptoms after an intravenous dose of opioids in an older person is 15 minutes. Sub-Q, it's 30 minutes. PO, it's 45 minutes. So that means that at the 15-minute mark, after giving an older person two milligrams of hydromorphone intravenously, you're going to have all the pain effect that you're ever going to get. So they're not going to get more pain relief. And you also have got all of the sedation, all of the hypotension, and all of the respiratory suppression that you're ever going to get. Therefore, you know where you're at at the 15-minute mark. If they're still in pain, it's time to give them more opioid. Um, and if they're not sedated, hypotense, or respiratory suppressed, they're not going to get those things later on. Clinical pearl, when you've got somebody who's got a pretty painful injury, but you're trying to get them whole. They've got a fall, they've got a back injury, but there's no bones broken, or just a big bad bruise, you know, that's really limiting their function. You know, I write the same order on just about every patient. Morphine, and this is for patients who've got, you know, moderate to severe pain, seven, eight, nine, or 10 of pain. Morphine, two to five milligrams, IV, Q, five to 10 minutes until pain is less than or equal to four. What that forces is it forces people to actually measure pain because there's no other disease where we don't actually treat to an endpoint. We don't just give insulin because I think you need 15 units, you know, but we give painkillers that way. And it, it gets the pain control quick because we want patients under quick pain control so we can decide, okay, that dose of morphine that I gave you, like you needed six milligrams of morphine, that's where your that's where your pain control is, you know, and then you can use that to titrate what their go forward medication needs will be. Okay, so the high risk, high benefit medications are anticoagulants, hypoglycemics, and opioids. We often use medications that need to be adjusted for renal insufficiency, like phenytoin or low molecular weight heparin, for example. Why is it important for us to calculate creatinine clearance rather than just depend on the creatinine level in the older patient? It is, I think, helpful for people to keep in mind what the parameters for measuring creatinine clearance are. That is age, so as you get older, your creatinine clearance goes down. Weight, as your weight goes down, your creatinine clearance goes down. And gender, so women have a lower creatinine clearance than men. Those numbers are all on the top part of the equation, and serum creatinine is on the bottom. So one way to remember it is the little old lady, her kidneys probably don't work very well. She's lightweight, she's female, and she's old. Uh, so even if her creatinine is normal, probably her kidneys are not working very well. And you need to keep that in mind when dosing anything that's renally cleared. So that's most opioids, certainly digoxin, which we don't use much anymore, certainly phenytoin. One that's an interesting thing to keep in mind is that also includes nitrofurantoin, most people's go-to drug for UTIs in older people. In fact, you need to be able to get the nitrofurantoin through the kidney down into the bladder before it has an effect. But if your kidney isn't clearing the nitrofurantoin because of decreased glomerular filtration rate, then you probably are not actually getting the nitrofurantoin to where it needs to go. So nitrofurantoin also even depends on creatinine clearance. Dilantin is a good example of a medication that needs to be adjusted for creatinine clearance and also for low albumin. 
So for patients in whom you suspect a low albumin, for example, if they appear cachectic and malnourished, or if they have a creatinine clearance of less than 20 in that little old lady, for example, you should calculate a corrected dilantin level. Not uncommonly, an elderly patient on dilantin will have a pseudo-normal dilantin level, but if you correct their dilantin level according to their creatinine clearance and albumin, they may in fact have a wildly elevated and toxic dilantin level. You can find the formula for corrected dilantin level at mdcalc.com, which by the way has pretty much every calculation you'll ever need in emergency medicine. So we've been talking about atypical presentations. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about ACS in the elderly. You had mentioned that patients who are elderly are more likely to present with shortness of breath and or weakness than they are with chest pain with their ACS. Dr. Lee, why is it especially important for us to identify ACS patients in older patients? If you look at the mortality rate, when we look at older patients, they have a much higher mortality rate from ACS than younger patients. So the benefits are actually higher. And it's really counterintuitive. There is sort of a, I'm going to call it ageist culture that's permeated traditional medicine, that if older people, that an investment isn't justified. But if you actually take a non-judgmental, evidence-based approach to it, they have more to gain. They have a, a higher reduction in mortality for a lot of their of the interventions, particularly ones like treatments of ACS, which most people are fit enough to undergo PCI. We should be treating them. They stand to gain the most. But if they've got coexisting severe dementia, and dementia has a poor, it's a steadily progressive and in, inevitably fatal disease. So you really have to treat the patient. If, but an older healthy, thriving patient with a good quality of life with no other comorbidities, there's no reason why we wouldn't treat them aggressively for their ACS. We talked a bit about atypical symptoms in older patients with ACS, that they're more likely to present with shortness of breath and weakness than they are with chest pain. They're more likely to present with belly pain. They're less likely to have radiation of their chest pain. So all the things that we normally think about to try and get a good history of our chest pain, they're more likely not to have those. Besides the atypical symptoms, why is it more difficult for us to diagnose ACS in the older patient? So there's often a significant delay in presentation. People may be putting up with and therefore normalizing symptoms for several days and may end up with significant loss of myocardium because they've been putting up with with the symptoms for several days. Also, older person's electrocardiogram is almost never normal. They may have a left bundle branch already. They may have old cues. They may have all kinds of things that aren't normal. And unless you've got an electrocardiogram from recently, making a diagnosis based on that is going to be very difficult. Even following cardiac biomarkers is going to be difficult with the new ultra-sensitive troponins. I don't think any of us quite know what a given number means in a 90-year-old with some renal impairment as well. And certainly being uh, extra careful and conservative in assessing that person's troponin is probably in everybody's best interest. So atypical symptoms, delay in presentation, and non-diagnostic ECG make MI a much more difficult diagnosis to make in the elderly. And they have the most to benefit from many of our treatments for ACS. Older patients are much more likely to have a painless MI, especially if they have a history of CHF or stroke. 
In older patients who do present with chest pain for their MI, 20% of the time they'll describe their chest pain as burning or indigestion. Not only, as Dr. Milady described, are older patients more likely to have pre-existing ECG abnormalities, they're less likely to have ST elevation with their MI. The ECG is non-diagnostic in 43% of patients older than 85 years with their non-STEMI, compared with only 23% of patients younger than 65. So with these delays in presentation, atypical symptoms, and non-diagnostic ECGs, we have to be extra careful in assessing older patients who might have ischemia. So we'll continue with the theme here of atypical presentations. We've talked about the weak and dizzy patient. We've talked about ACS in the older patient. I want to talk now about abdominal pain in the older patient. So here's a quick case. You pick up a chart of an 85-year-old man from home who was well until five days ago when he developed a dull, constant, severe abdominal pain that was difficult to localize, associated with nausea and dark, loose stools. He has a history of hypertension and peripheral vascular disease for which he takes a calcium channel blocker and ASA. On exam, he appears to be in significant pain. His heart rate is 80 and irregular. His blood pressure is 165 on 100, and the rest of his vitals are normal. His abdomen is soft and mildly tender to deep palpation, especially in the periumbilical area. Bowel sounds were normal, and a bedside ultrasound revealed no AAA and no gallstones. When it comes to older patients who present to the ED with a chief complaint of abdominal pain, a full one-third of them will actually require surgery. They have about seven times the mortality of younger patients. In fact, the mortality of geriatric acute abdominal pain is 10%, which is about the same mortality as it is for STEMI. These patients are much more likely to be misdiagnosed because it's often difficult to get a good history and the physical exam findings are often non-contributory. Like you said, Dr. Lee, older patients who are discharged with the diagnosis of abdo pain, NYD, or constipation is another one, they're much more likely to have a poor outcome compared to younger patients. They're also much more likely to perforate their bowel and to have peritonitis. So let's talk a little bit about the pearls and pitfalls of how to pick up these difficult diagnoses in these high-risk patients. Dr. Milady, how is the physical exam of the abdomen different in older patients, and how can we improve our abdominal exam in these patients? Well, we can improve it by keeping in mind what's different. So the things that are different is that there's a loss of muscle mass everywhere as we age, and that certainly includes your abdomen as well. So you're much less likely to get guarding when you examine the abdomen because guarding is contraction of muscles. We lose nerve endings as we age. So like children, older people are much less able to localize pain and are, are rarely going to say it hurts right here where your appendix is or where your gallbladder is or where the diverticulitis is and more likely just to say my whole belly hurts. And the omentum is smaller and therefore less likely to wall off infections. So the development of peritonitis in the whole abdomen happens much earlier than it does in younger people. And just in terms of assessing the vital signs, it's important to remember a few components of autonomic physiology of the older person as well. So they don't respond to beta adrenergic stimulus, so painful conditions don't cause their heart rate to go up. Also, they've got decreased blood flow to every organ of their body, including their abdominal vasculature. So they're not getting as much blood flow to 
manage infections. Plus, their whole immune system is tamped down. Our immune system is tamped down as we age. We don't produce the leukotrienes and the cytokines, all the things that, that kick our um, immune uh, system into overdrive and that give us a fever. So in many ways, it's sort of, they're sort of like chronically immunocompromised patients. And they're also as though they're taking a beta blocker. So you could think of an older person as a 50-year-old who's immunocompromised and beta blocked at the same time. So specifically when it comes to the vital signs, their blood pressure could be normal when in fact they're actually yeah, so if hypotensive. You're seeing, if you're seeing a 82-year-old mm -hmm. with a blood pressure of 120 over 80, that sure isn't the time to be saying, oh great, your blood pressure is under perfect control. Chances are that's a hypertensive person who's actually in early sepsis. Right. Similarly, if uh, their heart rate is 92, no time to be saying, oh, good, you've got a well-controlled heart rate. More likely, that's a person with sepsis who hasn't been able to mount a tachycardic response. Or if they're afebrile, it's not the time to be saying, oh, good, at least you don't have sepsis. It's the time to be aware that most older people don't have the means of mounting a febrile response to an immune stimulus. And echoing off that, the white blood count, the surgery resident who rolls her eyes when you tell them the white count's 4.1, you know, for all those reasons as well, they may not uh, have the same response to a challenge. So it's reasonable to think of the normal older person as being like a beta-blocked, immunocompromised 50-year-old. A normal blood pressure may be relative hypotension. Most older patients with acute cholecystitis or appendicitis are afebrile. And as if they were on beta blockers, older people blunt the ability to manifest a tachycardia that would normally accompany things like anemia, fever, or sepsis. The three most common surgical causes of an acute abdomen in older patients are number one, cholecystitis, number two, bowel obstruction, and number three, appendicitis. Dr. Lee, sometimes we suffer from the common cognitive error of diagnostic momentum. So when we see a patient with belly pain, we immediately think exclusively about abdominal causes, and we miss non-abdominal diagnoses that cause abdo pain. What are some of the more common extra-abdominal causes of abdominal pain in the elderly? You always have to be thinking about ACS presenting with an epigastric pain as opposed to chest pain, but they'll, they'll describe it as epigastric. Pneumonia often will present with a right-sided pneumonia, will present with a right uh, upper quadrant pain, left-sided pneumonia with left upper quadrant pain. Uh, sometimes we'll see an incarcerated hernia in the scrotum presenting with abdominal pain that you might not localize. A couple years ago, I had a referral in from the Dean of Medicine at our faculty about one of the university's main donors with a fabulous history for appendicitis, except on a scan of his abdomen, it actually showed that he had infarcted his right lower lobe of his lung from a pulmonary embolus. So certainly any kind of interthoracic event can cause abdominal pain. And the bladder is another one. I've seen a number of older patients with abdominal pain where they were in urinary retention. And if you don't think that, then you're going to miss it. Okay. So think outside the box, so to speak. Correct. And cholecystitis is by far the most common cause of surgical abdomen in older patients. 
Let's talk a little bit more about cholecystitis. How is the presentation of cholecystitis different in older patients? So some of the things that we said, they're less likely to mount a fever. They're less likely to have a white count. Less uh, likely to localize. Less yeah. likely to localize. No, they're less likely to have nausea, vomiting. A peritoneal response to yeah. the examination. Right, okay. Yeah, you might not have the classic uh, food provocation sign too. Okay, and I guess the scary thing is, is that Older patients with cholecystitis have a much higher mortality. They're much more likely to get a gangrenous gallbladder, and they're more likely to perforate their gallbladder. Uh, these are the patients that we actually really need to act on quickly. Also, in, go back to what we were talking about earlier, late presentations. People have often been putting up with this slowly developing inflammatory condition for three, four, five days before they show up in the emergency department. Mm-hmm. Good point. So the top three causes of a surgical belly in older patients are cholecystitis, bowel obstruction, and appendicitis. Let's talk a little bit about appendicitis. As high as 25% of older patients with appendicitis get missed on their first ED visit. This is partly because we think of appendicitis as a disease of the young. However, 10% of appendicitis cases are in older patients, and 50% of patients who die of appendicitis are elderly. This is mostly because there's five times the rate of perforation. You can think of appendicitis in older patients in a similar way that you would think of kids under three. We don't think of it as much in this age group, but the perforation rate is higher and they're much more difficult to diagnose. Another devastating diagnosis that carries a really high mortality rate, as high as 70%, and is often missed in older patients is mesenteric ischemia. It turns out that the case that I presented was mesenteric ischemia. What tips can you give our listeners to help pick up this really difficult-to-make diagnosis? Take the symptoms seriously. If an older person has new abdominal pain, they've lived for 85 years and haven't had abdominal pain, now they have it, chances are that it's going to be something significant. So you really can't leave that alone until you've found an answer. I think it's important to think about the vascular risk factors, right? So patients at risk for VTE, like undiagnosed AFib, and patients who had a hypotensive episode for something else, that's another one where you want to be thoughtful. Like they were septic, they were in shock for whatever reason, and then coming back with a new problem of abdominal pain. So anything where they, they might have dropped their blood pressure or thrown a clot, those are important things to think about. Uh, so, so I think probably your be- best defense is the high index of suspicion, right? You know, just remembering that since abdominal pain is likely to be something, you know, just go down your li- list, get through the top three, and, and don't forget about is- ischemic colitis as a cause. So when you are thinking about mesenteric is- ischemia, keep in mind that 90% patients with mesenteric ischemia will have a positive lactate, so it's an important test to add. And the choice of imaging is important. A plain, uh, non-contrast abdominal CT will not be particularly sensitive for ischemic colitis or mesenteric ischemia. So you do need to have an abdominal CTA to, uh, with the right protocol to pick up this diagnosis. Um, and it can be a bit tricky sometimes. Early on, it, it can be tricky to pick up with initial CTA. So. If it's in your differential diagnosis and they have a high lactate, if you're pretty sure that that's what's going on here, don't necessarily be deterred by an equivocal CT scan. One other clinical pearl when it comes to mesenteric ischemia is just in the history. Sometimes you'll get a history of abdominal angina. 
So the story usually goes that they have postprandial abdominal pain, like they would in biliary colic, for example. And then when they start to infarct the bowel, they come to the ED with severe, unrelenting abdominal pain. Other clues to mesenteric ischemia might be pain out of proportion to physical findings, and you might be tipped off by a very high white blood cell count or severe metabolic acidosis, although these are usually late findings. Dr. Milady is now going to round it out with some cognitive forcing strategies that you can use on your next shift when you're confronted with an elderly patient with abdominal pain. If you're seeing an older person with abdominal pain, frame it as a likely serious condition. If you're thinking gastro, don't think gastro, think mesenteric ischemia. If you're thinking constipation, don't think constipation, think bowel obstruction. If you're thinking renal colic, don't think renal colic, think aortic aneurysm. So when it comes to imaging the older patient with abdominal pain, your threshold for getting imaging should be much lower in the elderly compared to younger patients. One study showed that CT altered the ED diagnosis of abdominal pain in elderly patients 45% of the time. CT also changed the decision to admit the patient 26% of the time, the need for surgery 12% of the time, and the need for antibiotics in 21% of cases. So liberal use of CT in elderly patients with abdominal pain is recommended. Since many older people with abdominal pain have a serious disease, consider close observation when symptoms persist and the diagnosis remains unclear. There is an important caveat when it comes to ordering abdominal CTs for older patients, and Dr. Lee is going to explain here. When we give a bit blanket advice, one problem that comes out is we stop thinking. So if you see an older person with abdo pain, you know you're going to get the CT anyways, so you're less careful in your history and you're less careful in your physical. And, I, that, and that's the wrong message. Uh, I'll give you a specific example. If you just sort of older person, belly pain, CT, and you don't even see the patient, right? Well, what about if they have cholecystitis? You're going to miss it, missed on CT a lot of time. So yes, it's often the right answer, but that's only after you go through the right process. We've got this patient with severe abdominal pain. Let's talk specifically about drug choices for controlling pain in older patients in the emergency department. What is your go-to drug of choice in the patient with severe pain in the emergency department who's over the age of 65? Hydromorphone. Hydromorphone. Dr. Lee? Um, I will use hydromorphone or morphine. Frankly, I think it's less about which one. Corey Slovis said this best, you know, it's the exact milligram dosage of morphine you need to give or hydromorphine you need to give and enough, but not too much. So I think the important thing is that do it intravenously, get a mindset that this patient's pain should be four on 10 in 15 to 20 minutes. If I'm a little bit worried about hemodynamics in the patient, I'll uh, use fentanyl while I'm giving him fluid resuscitation. That's a, the one exception. I think it's more important is that we uh, titrate and get to a good endpoint, not in two hours from now, right? When I subject that patient to all that additional physiologic stress. I fully agree. Use an opioid that's effective and use it aggressively so that you bring pain under control uh, as quickly as possible. There's a slight pharmacodynamic advantage to hydromorphone. It is the only one of all of the narcotics that is fully metabolized in the liver with no active metabolites. So 
even if you're in complete renal failure, hydromorphone is still a safe medication to use because all of it is being ground up by the liver. So high potency, you can use very small doses. It's readily available in most emergency departments. 0.5 milligrams intravenously goes a very long way in most people over the age of 75. But again, wait 15 minutes. You're at your peak effect at the 15-minute point. If they need another 0.5, that would be reasonable, and you can keep doing that until they're comfortable. When talking about belly pain in older patients and about opiates, our favorite topic of discussion comes up, constipation. We touched on this a little bit earlier. While I'm always reluctant to write constipation at the bottom of the chart as the sole reason for an older person's abdominal pain for fear of missing something more ominous, there's the occasional patient who does, in fact, only have constipation as their cause for their belly pain. Can you review for us what your approach is to treating the older patient with constipation in the ED. Yeah, so thanks for bringing up the value of constipation as a diagnosis of last resort. There's a sort of paradoxical issue there in that over the last three years, the province of Ontario coroner's report regarding death of older people, the main problem associated with emergency departments was under-treatment of constipation leading to death. We think of constipation as annoying and uncomfortable. We don't think of it as a, as a cause of death. In fact, in older people, it can lead to bowel perforation and it can lead to impaction and delirium and falls and death. So it actually is a serious diagnosis in older people that needs to be treated fairly aggressively in the emergency department. Just last week, there was a Canadian Medical Association journal cover story on constipation in the elderly that looked at the evidence around management of uh, older people with constipation. Not fully specific to the emergency department, but I think some valuable pearls to take from, away from it. Constipation in the elderly is often caused by opioids, but really being old is the GI equivalent of being on opioids because being old gives you slower gastric motility and decreased colonic secretion. So you produce hard, dry stools that aren't being moved along. So management of constipation in older people is, needs to deal with both of those things, whether they're on opioids or not. You need to give them something to soften the stool by drawing water into the bowel, and you need to give something that increases GI motility. So for the first thing, lactulose, polyethylene glycol, PEG, will all draw water into the bowel. So lactulose, 30 to 60 milliliters, that's two to four tablespoons a day. PEG, in Canada, it's dosed in sachets, so two to four sachets with a large glass of water. In terms of increasing bowel motility, senicides, that is Senecod or any number of other trade names, or bisacodyl, two or three tablets at bedtime, will usually activate most bowels, whether they're slowed down just because of old age or because of opioid use. There's a good CMAG review from January 28, 2013, called Treatment of Constipation in Older People. They found that there's really two groups of constipation medications that are effective. First are the osmotics, and second are the stimulant laxatives. 
So the osmotics are either lactulose or polyethylene glycol, and the stimulant laxatives are bisacodyl, trade name Dulcolax, or senicides like Senecot, for example. So it makes sense when you're discharging patients from the emergency department with constipation to try a combination of one of the drugs from each class. In the emergency department, if you're faced with an older patient who has severe constipation, first, you need to do a digital rectal exam to see if there's stool jamming up the rectal vault. In this case, you'll need to do a disimpaction. You might want to try giving a glycerin suppository about an hour in advance to soften the stool before you try the disimpaction. Another thing to try in the emergency department with patients with severe constipation is a fleet enema or soap suds enema. However, the literature doesn't show any strong evidence for their efficacy. So that about wraps it up for this month's episode. For those of you with a further interest in geriatric emergency medicine, Dr. Milady has just launched this amazing website called geri-em.com. That's G-E-R-I-E-M.com. It has an interactive learning tool with six modules that cover the main topics in geriatric emergency medicine. There's simulated patient interactions with self-assessment and key references to articles. On next month's episode, we're going to be talking with two emergency doctors from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto about pediatric orthopedic emergencies. So until next time, take it easy.